0: I' just to take a quick pause here as well for us to think about, uh, think about the history of the KKK. right? So the, the KKK has a number of different chapters. Uh, in uh, its earliest iteration is right after the Civil War, in the context of reconstruction. Um, this is uh, the rise of, um, basically white men who are forcibly reinstalling the racial hierarchies and the political agency of whites in the context of, the, uh, of reconstruction the Reconstruction South. So that's the first chapter. Uh, Very early 20th century, the KKK has largely disappeared. It gets reconstituted in the 1910s and 1920s in the moment of the bloody summer, uh, bloody summer of 1919, Um, all of these other issues uh, in which uh, racism really peaks uh, America's uh, sort of landscape of tension. The KKK is reborn. The next chapter of the KKK, of course, happens in the mid-1960s with the rise of the Civil Rights Act, uh, the Fair, uh, Fair Housing Act, Voting Rights Act, all of these other uh, moves by the federal government to ensure enfranchisement of African-Americans across the American South in the 1960s, we see the the, the third chapter, the next rise of the KKK. What remains to be seen is if our own age is the fourth chapter. That's an important question for us. In the early 20th century, we also have to recognize that the KKK was not just after African-Americans. Right? Who was the object of anger in addition to African Americans? Who was the object of anger by the KKK? Jews, Jews and Catholics. Catholic right? Catholic immigrants and Jews. What's important for us to recognize is that the KKK is framed around white American Protestantism. Right? Well, it's all about jobs, right? But their identity is who, and you begin to see the emergence of who is an American. An American, and I'll read a quote uh, at our next stop, an American is a white male Protestant, right? And what gets tied to that and what a lot of scholars have more recently uh, been unpacking for us is that whiteness has its own history, right? We think today too commonly and too easily in binary terms, right? White, black, and now, of course, Latino, right? Or Asian American. But those binaries are very much a product of our own age. In the early 20th century, Jews were not white. Neither were Catholics. If you're Irish or you're Italian, you're not white. Right? So whiteness, as it's understood, is much more circumscribed. And I have long wondered about the adjacency of these two buildings. Right? So First Baptist Church's first building was on the site of where these 1980s condos were. First Presbyterian was the parking lot uh, that's on the south side. That was First Presbyterian Church. Christ Church Episcopal is right there. Um, There was a Union Church that is now the building that's occupied by the Haven. The majority of the important white Protestant congregations were all around that square. There are two places of worship that are not, and they're right here. The Catholic Church and a synagogue. Now, I have no evidence to suggest that they actually picked those spaces to retreat from the public sphere, but it does seem to me an interesting correlation that the two presumably white people groups who were in the early 20th century when these buildings were built, not described as white, have an alignment with one another, right? Because they're also outside the fold. So this is one of Charlottesville's two really important city squares, right? The other, of course, now is now dominated by the Lee statue and was marked by most of the churches in the city of Charlottesville by the late, 18, late 19th and early 20th centuries. This site was not surrounded by churches, but this site was surrounded by law offices, right? This is the political and legal heart of the city of Charlottesville. And it has been, since the late 18th century, dominated by the courthouse, right? The courthouse, the Jefferson-designed, Thomas Jefferson-designed courthouse um, is a really important fixture. Now, interestingly, it actually faces that direction, so it gets, the city gets reoriented over time uh, and has a number of additions. The end wall that's facing us here is, um, is, a, is an early 19th century addition to the Thomas Jefferson uh, courthouse. But that is the, the heart of the uh, sort of courthouse square, Uh, There was, uh, for a long time through the uh, late 19th and into the early 20th century, an alley that ran here. And so this square was actually two squares subdivided by an alley. And this site was dominated by a housing complex called McKee's Row. And it was uh, just a huge boarding house, right? One big multiple-unit boarding house, a tenement row. Uh, The other important fixture is on the far side of the square, and that's the... um, uh, slave auction block, right? So we do know the location of the slave auction block through the, um, into the early 19th century, and that's exactly on the opposite side. So um, racial disenfranchisement has already been uh, part and parcel of, of this landscape even before the period that we're talking about. So this is the center of authority and power in the city of Charlottesville. In 1909, uh, in, uh, in ways that's concurrent with practices across the American South, the uh, city of Charlottesville, orders uh, its Civil War Memorial Monument. And that's uh, it's standing right over there. It's, a, it's a, sort of a, a, a common soldier figure. In 1917, two African-American men are charged with stealing a chicken or accused of stealing a chicken, and they're pursued uh, by a police officer who's armed. They are unarmed. In the midst of that, uh, in the grappling that goes back and forth between these individuals, One of the African-American men uh, men disarms the armed police officer and shoots the police officer with his own gun. This results in the immediate incarceration of those two men in the jail that is just down this alley. So if you follow this alley over the street, you'll actually see a a gray stone building. Uh, That's the building where these two men were uh, temporarily uh, uh, held uh, in the days after their... um, their capture. Two nights later, there emerges a crowd of some hooded but most unhooded white men uh, with torches surrounding the jail, demanding the release of these two men to the crowd. 1917, what are their intentions? It's a lynching, right? So this is a lynching mob. And they have every intention... Of a double lynching on the location of the shooting of the white police officer. The newspaper account the next day unfolds the event over the course of the night before in extensive detail. The tension grows over the course of about eight to ten hours. At dusk, or at nightfall, the crowd grows. We know that they're actually gathering because the streets are named. They're coming down this alley. There's so many of them. They're filling the alley. They're filling the side streets as they're catcalling and chanting for the release of these two men from the jail. The sheriff and his deputy are standing armed, guard, at the jail, refusing to have these two men released to the crowd. The The sheriff is getting increasingly anxious Um, And uh, because he's heard that reinforcements for the crowd are coming, are marching from the university. Right? So the first wave of the mob are townies. The second wave of the mob are, are coming from the university. And that's because we actually now have evidence that Charlottesville in these years has two chapters of the KKK, not just one. The University of Virginia has its own chapter. Right? And so this is the convergence of two chapters around the intention of a, an illegal murder of two men by lynching. Um, the sheriff is getting nervous because he's heard heard tell that they're coming. And we actually, the, uh, the written description has the route that the university men are walking, and it's the route we just took. Uh, their intention is to convene, and by force... Extract the men from the jail. So the sheriff, in a panic, requests reinforcements from Stanton and asks the sheriff and Stanton to put 50 armed men on a train and get them to Charlottesville as soon as possible. Okay, so they're actually loaded on the train and they're on their way to Charlottesville. 50 armed men. Um, The sheriff is not certain that they'll arrive in time, so he calls out the fire department. The fire department is intent, the intention is that he's gonna ask the fire department to deploy the, uh, the fire engine, the water the and water pump, on the crowd to disperse the crowd. When the fire uh, team arrives, they realize that the riot is by white men and they refuse to uh, use their machine to disperse the crowd. In fact, many of them join the crowd. Cooler heads eventually prevail. And over a many, many, many hour conversation between the sheriff and the crowd, the crowd eventually disperses and goes home. The two men are then put on a a train and sent to Richmond where just a few weeks later they're executed for their crimes. And so this doesn't actually show up as a lynching because it's an unsuccessful attempt. But now I want you to remind me, what's the urban environment in which this is all happening? What building is here? McKee's Row, largely black occupied tenement. They're looking out their windows all night long at this event. Okay? So that's happening in 1917. In the August of 1920, Congress makes this radical move of women's suffrage. They actually give women the vote. But I find fascinating Virginia's, and specifically Charlottesville's, response to that. Hear this. Virginia Democrats respond in August of 1920. Negro women are making desperate attempts to register. This is in, his, this is in their mind a serious problem because Negro women are more intelligent than Negro men. Therefore, they're much more successful in meeting the requirements of the voter registration laws. He appeals to women in Virginia to look to Democratic white women of the state, whether they favor equal suffrage or not, to maintain the prestige, the integrity, the traditions, and the honor of Virginia by voting. And so what we actually have embedded in this claim, this appeal is white men in Virginia appealing to white women to vote to ensure that those votes outweigh the votes of all African Americans. So racism is a greater fear, is a greater driver than is the rise of suffrage.